Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from bad cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Hallie Teko, to our show today. Hallie is an entrepreneur, angel investor, and podcast host that is passionate about fixing our healthcare system. She's a founder of Natalist, a women's health company focused on evidence-backed fertility and pregnancy essentials, which was acquired by Everly Health in October 2021. She also founded and ran Rock Health, an early stage digital health venture fund. And most recently, she's a co-founder and chair of CoFertility, a human first fertility ecosystem, rewriting the egg freezing and egg donation experience. In this week's episode, we talked to Hallie about overcoming perfectionism, imposter syndrome, and the realities of entrepreneurship. When she was on the hunt for her next big investment, Hallie searched high and low to find a company to back that was approaching fertility in a way that she had envisioned. When she couldn't find the perfect company to invest in, she decided to create it herself. Natalist was the first company that created a more evidence-based approach to reproductive care. We talk all about this and her journey in corporate to then being an investor and finally startup founder and the biggest surprises and lessons she's learned along the way. Welcome to the show, Hallie. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, I know we've been wanting to chat for a very long time. So I'm super excited that you're here. I personally am just inspired by you, you know, as an investor, operator and thought leader in women's health, which is clearly a big passion of mine as well. But for people who might not know you, how would you summarize your life's work or mission? Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) Big question. I am wholeheartedly dedicated to changing healthcare for the better, especially for underserved populations, including women. Mm-hmm. I think that would sum it up. Everything I do, I do a lot of things, but they all kind of come back to improving human health here in the I U.S., love- specifically in the U.S. I think uh, tackling global health is a, a, a very different beast, and um, my work really focuses here on the U.S., and I, I, I barely understand how U.S. healthcare works. Every yeah. country is so unique and different that that's really where my focus is. No, I love it. And your hands are in so many different <laughs> things, but I love the overarching mission, um, yeah. which is great. And we'll unpack all of your journey today, but I actually want to start with young Hallie. So I know in middle school, I was actually surprised to hear that you were learning how to read the stock market, like invest in stocks in the stock market. I'm like, where, how did that come from? So tell me the story. How did you fall into that? You did your homework. That's so funny. So I'm a first generation college grad. So my parents, um, you know, did not, they both graduated high school. Their parents- didn't get from, from Ohio. So I was born and raised and my parents got married very young. And, you know, but my my father was an entrepreneur and my mom helped him and they had a small manufacturing uh, plant in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, that's kind of where I caught the entrepreneurial bug, but business in general just really enthralled me. And my best friend who grew up across the street from me, her dad um, owned a sporting goods store in town. And um, so I kind of was surrounded by, by entrepreneurs and that's 
yeah, that's kind of where um, I got infected, I guess. Um, but the stock market, I, I really, um, you know, it's, I don't know how I kind of started reading the newspaper, but at the back of the newspaper had the stocks and I was so curious about what these numbers meant and how to follow them. And um, it became just something I was fascinated by and I would pick stocks and follow them. And then, you know, I'd get a little bit of money and buy a stock and follow it. it. And my first stock I bought was um, not a good one, but um, Halliburton only because the ticker was Hal. And I felt like that was like kismet that I had the stock. Now I'm like just I would never invest in an oil company today, but, um, and then I bought like McDonald's stock and then AOL and, you know, I had just, and, and I still, I still do that today. Hmm. So I still do single stock investing, small amounts. Um, for instance, I bought restoration hardware stock, um, when we bought our New York apartment years ago and I spent way too much money there. And I was like, wow, this something about this store, this is a really special place. And that's been a great stock for me to hold. Um, yep. I should have bought more. I, I probably, I'll buy like five or 10 shares, just something nominal um, as a way for me to feel like I'm getting to know a, a business that I'm intrigued by. And so yeah. over the years, I, I pick up random, you know, stocks just just for fun. Um, certainly not like an investment strategy, but more sure. um, for me and, and just my interest in business in general. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you mentioned you were the first in your family to go to college. Your parents are entrepreneurial. I'm sure they had, or you, I'd love to get your thoughts on, did they have certain expectations for you as you kind of were going on into the college years? Cause I kind of know what that, at least from my perspective, yeah. immigrant mentality is with my family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd love to hear your story too. Am I allowed to ask you questions? <laughs> I, I love, I love hearing, I know it's so interesting. I mean, and I'm so far away from it now, but you know, when you're in college and, and just out of college, the, the influence is, is enormous. Um, my dad in particular, really, he saw that I was pretty good at math, that I was really interested in. Like I took a AP econ and I, you know, he, he saw that these sort of classes intrigued me. Now I wanted to be a journalism major. I was the editor of my school newspaper and I thought that was, um, you know, the coolest job that I could imagine. And my dad talked me out of it. And he was like, I, you need to have a stable job. Don't follow my footsteps. His company ended up going bankrupt. Um, we, we went from having a very comfortable middle-class life to, um, losing everything. It was very important for my father that I had a job that was financially stable with the 401k and health insurance and all of that jazz. Um, and so he really pushed me to be a business major, and I, I loved being a business major. It was um, it was a great fit for me, and I'm you know happy that he he really encouraged that. I love it, and I'm always so curious because you know as I mentioned, my dad was also an entrepreneur. I've kind of seen the ups and downs, and a lot of his I would say hardships happen maybe maybe when I was younger, so I was less aware. But if you witness your dad kind of going through bankruptcy, did that kind of impact the way you thought about business and kind of push you away from entrepreneurship? Because you saw how risky it was, like firsthand. Yeah, it's so interesting because um, so his business really went down because of macro the macro situation, which was NAFTA. Um, as soon as there was more fair trading across the border with manufacturing, he could not compete with prices. He had to pay his employees, and he kept his employees 
forever. It was a small company, but people that, um, you know, worked with him for, for decades, um, at the point, you know, when, when the company did kind of go bankrupt, I I think there was no one that was there for less than like a decade. And so it was, it was really sad to me that the government didn't look out for small business, a small business like that. And I saw how well he took care of people and he's just a really honest business person. And I really admired that in him. And so if anything, it just made me realize how, how precarious business can be to regulatory changes. And so, you know, when I was younger, I always thought I was always intrigued by what he did and he would never let me, you know, help or I could never, you know, I'd go to the office, but it was like, go, you know, color over there. And I'd be like, well, I want to, you know, let me like, I don't know, do something. And he saw my interest in it and wanted me to do bigger things. He sure. didn't want me to get sucked into like a small family business. I see. No, that that's super interesting. Well, he did a good job <laughs> because you ended up, you know, killing it in business, went to Harvard Business School. And actually I was prepping for the interview and you mentioned something so fascinating and you call that time period when you're in business school that it was simultaneously eye-opening and shocking. Yeah. So what did you mean by that? Because we all think like once you get, go there, you've kind of made it. And I, I'm sure you even made it in your parents' eyes. Oh, my gosh. I was a, a wild, what they call a wild card acceptance at, at Harvard Business School. I was not at a big five consulting firm. I was not in banking. I, um, you know, I worked I, I worked in finance. I worked in at Intel and in a startup before um, going to business school. And um, I didn't go to a prestigious undergrad. I went to a a smaller kind of unknown undergrad called Case Western Reserve University. And everybody out West are like, is that a military school? Um, (laughs) In Silicon Valley, they really raised you professionally to to believe in meritocracy and that uh, you can go as far as your abilities will you know, allow you to go. And then when I went to HBS and I kind of saw how the world really works, it was, it was really hard. I had a very difficult time adjusting. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of folks there, um, from worlds that I had no idea. I mean, I probably knew they existed, but had never, you know, I, I, I never rubbed elbows with people like that. Um, you know, children of oil barons and princes. And I mean, just, it was, it was a very different world for me and, um, very, you know, a lot of really prestigious folks there. Um, and then I realized, you know, at some point I was like, wait a minute, they're not any smarter than me. They just were really lucky to be born into a certain type of family. And maybe I shouldn't even say lucky. Maybe they didn't love their childhood. I don't know. Um, but I realized like, whoa, we're all, we're all here for a reason. And, um, I, I'm just as smart as anyone else here and kind of just got over the intimidation. But it was very intimidating for me at first. Um, and also just like realizing how how the world works. They all knew each other. Like all the wealthy, like European students, they all kind of came in knowing each other. I didn't know a single person. Like no one from my high school probably has gone on to go to Harvard Business School, maybe, but not many. Um, yeah. So yeah. And, and, you know, I was able to make a, a, a group of friends that um, some from those backgrounds, some not. Um, mm-hmm. You end up, everybody kind of comes in a little, a little intimidated and, and performative in a way, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you want to, uh, it is, it's the Socratic method in the classroom. So you're called on and you have to sound smart in front of a hundred people and you, you know, 
if you're someone who's shy at public speaking, you will quickly learn how to be comfortable with public speaking. And um, eventually everybody has moments of vulnerability and you realize it's a, it, at that point, we're all Harvard MBAs at this point. So no matter what happened before, what happens next is up to us. I, I love that. And I think it's so interesting where you mentioned, you know, you, you go to HBS and you're kind of intimidated, like, how did I get in? I'm the wild card. You know, you look at other people yeah. as if they might be better than you. But then as you mentioned, like as the semester goes by, you kind of realize you're similar to everyone else. And I remember my moment of clicking like that. I was working in New York at JP Morgan and I thought I was a wild card. Didn't go to, I didn't go to business school. I went to BU, not an Ivy League undergrad. And everyone I was working with, many of them went to Harvard, like HBS. And I was like, okay, they're clearly smart and that's great. But like, I'm on the same level as them and I didn't even yeah. go to business school and I'm like, okay, like it's not, there's a certain point in life where like your grit and hunger kind of will take you farther. But I don't know if you feel that way, kind of like being amongst your f- peers and maybe looking back, you know, as time outside of business school, do you ever think about that or feel that way? Yeah, certainly. And I think, um, I, I bring that with me to the workplace as well, because there's a world where I didn't get into Harvard Business School, but I'm mm. I still have the same brain. <laughs> um, I'm you know still the same leader. I certainly picked up a lot of really important lessons, but the biggest thing that you get in business school is a network. Let's be sure. honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there there's certainly a ton of I, I'm so glad I went, and there's so much that I learned. However, I think about. Um, I see people who didn't go to fancy schools and I'm like, that's me. That's another version of me. And I, and I believe in this person because I believe in me. And so I think having that perspective has helped me um, not have too much of a chip on my shoulder for having uh, a Harvard MBA. I'm, I'm so proud of it. And it's so, it's still to this day, I graduated 12 years ago. Um, still to this day, it's really cool to say, like, I'm really proud because my life could have gone a very different direction. Um, and, and I'm, you know, it's, it's something that I have, but it's, you know, it, and it, it's propelled my career, but I am, um, you know, I, I would have done something great without it anyways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that's what I mean. People always ask, like, should I get my MBA or not? And, um, I think it helped me get further faster, but I would have been fine without it. And you can too. I think it's like, do you want to take two years? And it's really fun. And do you, is the content interesting to you? Um, or are you going to be miserable? <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. And what What I think is so fascinating, like you mentioned, you didn't think that you would necessarily get in, but 
you still applied? Have you always been kind of like a dreamer and you have your eye on the prize? Because a lot of people like I didn't (laughs) apply to HBS. You know, I still took the GMAT. I didn't end up going um, to business school. But did you know that there could be a chance for you to get in? Have you always had like your eye on the prize? Oh, that's a good question. So I, so as I said, I went to kind of an unnamed school in, in Cleveland, 40 minutes from where I grew up. Um, And that like gave me a drive to just do the opposite as quickly as possible. And when I graduated, when I graduated college, well, I'd studied abroad. So that kind of was the first time I ever left the country, you know, my junior year. Boom. I mean, like wow. <laughs> life changing, right? Right. Yes. Mind blown. And then I had a really awesome internship in New York City. And then I was like, I'm applying to jobs. Just take me as far away from what I know as possible. And so that's how I ended up in San Francisco. I knew one person there. Um, I literally just took the job that was furthest away. I didn't take the the best offer. I didn't take the most prestigious company. I was like, just get me as far away as possible. Um, and then what I learned was, <clears throat> even though I felt like, uh, you know, as I I'm going back to the whole meritocracy thing, <clears throat> I did I did recognize that um, you know people assume things about you based on where you go to school. And so I was like, look, I know I'm I know I'm smart. Um, I did well in school. I just went to the school that gave me the best financial aid package. I was a work study student. I worked the entire college experience and I had to pay for college entirely on my own. So I knew that the college I went to was for that reason. Um, But I felt like I lacked, um, people had to get to know me to know my ability. And this is uh, something that a lot of women are burdened with. I'm sure there are men that are burdened with this too, but a lot of women who you are uh, evaluated based on your track record versus versus your potential. Um, but I, but you know what uh, changes that is a fancy diploma. <laughs> then you're, then you are like really evaluated based on your potential. So I was like, I want a fancy diploma, um, and so I did. I I I was only going to do it if I was able to go to a school that I felt like would get the attention that I felt like I deserved intellectually. Um, And so I took the GMAT so seriously. Like I studied, uh, you know, I had a six month plan. I like, I I planned out every week, which section I would study for, how often I would take practice tests. And I took it very, very seriously. I didn't drink for six months. This was in my Mm -hmm. twenties, my early twenties. I did not drink for six months. Um, (laughs) And, and I did really, really well. So I kind of knew that I was going to be able to get into looking at my scores and my grades from undergrad, which were very good. Um, You know, I, I knew that I could get in that I fell in kind of the brackets. Um, but I, but again, I was a wild card. I didn't have, um, you know, I didn't work at McKinsey or, um, you know, Goldman Sachs. So, um, I knew I would get in somewhere. I hoped I would get in somewhere and what, and I didn't get in everywhere, but I did get into HBS. So that was great. (laughs) No, I love it. And what's so interesting about your story is that the importance of seeing what's possible, like the fact that you went abroad, 11th, sorry, 11th grade, did you say? what? No, my junior year, my junior, junior year, year of, okay. of college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the fact that that was your junior year in college, you know, then you worked in New York and you're like, oh my gosh, there's this whole world outside of Ohio that there's so much potential. So it's just, that's why I'm so passionate about this podcast. Cause I also think that women need to see other women like them and hear other experiences because that's how I started my business and made all these career moves. So I love that 
you know, once that seed was planted, you're like, man, the world is my oyster. Let's go for it. Let's go far. Let's try our hardest. And you went for it, which is really amazing. So, you know, now I want to go back to your time. You started a VC firm, Rock Health in Business School, which again, is not something you hear too often and you did quite well. So maybe you can share more about how that opportunity kind of happened and, you know, what you did to get that off the ground. Yeah. So in business school, I, I knew I wanted to combine my interests in technology and business and um, in healthcare specifically, and really the social impact of healthcare. And so I, um, I had the opportunity to go work at Apple and cover the healthcare segment. Now, at the time, this was an internship between my first and second year. Um, at the time, the App Store was about a year old. So it was, it was brand new. And they didn't have anyone covering the healthcare segment because the healthcare apps, um, there weren't a lot of them. Um, the story I tell is that I was sitting next to the woman who covered the gaming segment and her name is Linda Kim. And to this day, she's a very good friend of mine. She's now the CEO of HyperConnect, lives in Seoul, Korea. I just visited her this year there. Um, and she, so she covered the gaming segment and the developers that she was working with in the gaming, the gaming apps that would kind of fall under her purview. They were so creative, so clever. They used every native feature of the phone. And at Apple, we always said the love is in the details. And I really was inspired by what they were building. And they were just really cool. Okay. And then there's like the healthcare segment that they gave to the 26-year-old intern. <laughs> and as you could imagine, um, you know, the sort of apps that at that time in 2010 that were being submitted uh, were like truly check the box strategy, like outsource development, like just not inspiring at all. Um, but when you look at the market size of games versus healthcare, it's like, you know, gaming is like 5% of the healthcare spend. I mean, it's, it's truly just, uh, uh, it's minuscule compared to the opportunity in healthcare. And so that was really the, the big aha moment for me was just, there's an arbitrage opportunity here. All these developers, all these brilliant developers and business people are trying to build social media platforms and games and notes apps. And like, hello, you want to make money? Like come to healthcare. We, you know, there's a, a bigger opportunity here and the bar is really, really low. And so that was the moment that sparked uh, the idea for Rock Health for me. And I went back my second year um, and partnered up with a classmate of mine who was an MD MBA and worked on this as, as the concept as an independent study. And I was simultaneously applying to VC jobs. No one wanted to hire me. I just kept getting farther along in this independent study and it eventually like turned into, you know, Rock Health, which was, which was great. And a lot of good timing on, on my part because, you know, it was like, Right before people really started to, it was probably five years before like digital health really blew up. So I was like the right time, the right place. I kind of can say like, I called it, I told you so. Um, but it was, it was such a great, it, it was such a great moment in the space because we really brought, you know, our backers, our LPs were giants in the space. Kaiser Permanente, Mayo Clinic, Nike, McKesson, like really awesome. Harvard Medical School. Um, really awesome healthcare incumbents that were willing to, they, they didn't, they bought into the idea that there was a technology transformation coming and they wanted to be part of it. And we didn't want to build things to replace doctors. We wanted to do it alongside them. And so we wanted to 
innovate with the system and not like, I, I don't know, we, we wanted to disrupt things, but yeah. um, we knew we needed these large players and incumbents to be part of it. And so that was, you know, my, my first like real job out of business school. Yeah. Well, it's amazing because, you know, now it all worked out, but at the time I'm sure you're like, why am I getting rejected from all these VC firms? Like I'm sure it was disheartening <laughs> that you're like, oh, let me take this independent study and yeah. turn it into something. But how did you get in front of those large players? That Because that's yeah. a big deal of everyone that you guys ended up securing. Totally. I mean, it again, this is when I said like business school is all about the network. So whatever business school you choose just make sure it's a network that you like, you're paying a lot of money to go to business school. So that network has to be the network you want. So it's okay to go to a small school in New Hampshire, say, if you're, you want to have your career in New Hampshire and you want to know everyone in New Hampshire, then go to that business school. You know, what I loved about HBS was it's really a global network. And I knew that like wherever I land in the world, I could, you know, I'd have an alum that I could probably call up and convince to talk to me. And that's exactly what I did with Rock Health. And I, I used the heck out of that alumni directory. Um, and I had a, an advisor for my independent study who was a old school healthcare investor. And he opened a lot of doors for me as well. Um, and the Mayo Clinic, the guy who worked in treasury at Mayo Clinic was um, an HBS alum, called him up. The Nike guy was a HBS alum. I mean, it was it was literally just through the network. Um, and, you know, we started small. It was very small. It was a few hundred thousand dollars when, when we got started. Um, and it has just kind of, you know, grown since then. But, you know, having being able to knock on those doors was really invaluable. Yeah. I just got a flashback when I was studying in Boston, one of my friends was going to HBS. And at the time I was in the undergrad business program and wanted to go into fashion. My dad was like, absolutely not similar to what your dad was saying. Like, you need a stable job. I know. (laughs) Ended up doing like banking. So it, you know, he he got the way eventually, but (laughs) I was like, I want to be in fashion. And my friend that went to HBS, actually pulled up that alumni directory and was like, well, tell me, like, let's see if we can connect with someone. And there was a bunch of brands. And I, yeah. I literally, I forgot about that moment, but I did have a few oh calls gosh. and met with people in New York. So listen, if you didn't go to HBS, maybe if you know someone or someone, get- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have to catch, you have to catch people at the right time though. It's like, they have to yeah. be, you know, cause, cause now, I mean, I, I barely respond to any of the emails I get cause it's just too much. You have to kind of find someone at like the time in their career where, um, you know, they also need you probably, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, they, they either have the capacity or they're, they're hiring and, you mm-hmm. know, they're like looking to network. Yes. Yes. No, I love that. So I actually, I thought this was interesting. You mentioned, you know, Rock Health, you started with a couple hundred thousand, then it ended up being, you know, quite larger. And if I read this correctly, I think there was a reporter who wrote something about you, you know, whether it was like your age with the fund and it really hurt you at a certain point, whether you felt like imposter or whatnot, but do you remember that moment? And was it, yeah, (laughs) there's, it's a specific reporter who, Recently, um, recently I saw on LinkedIn that he lost his job and I was, I, I smirked a little bit like karma's a bitch. He was, he was so, I mean, you know, though I, I, it's funny because I, I recently looked back at the things he said and it it felt worse at the time. Now I'm like, who fucking cares? Um, at the time though, I was just like, this guy has it out for me. He, uh, the, the thing that really like was the lowest point, I was so upset about it was, Um, I went to a conference in DC, a healthcare conference in DC, right outside of DC. And I wore like jeans and 
some top. I don't know. And he like wrote about my outfit and said how unprofessional I was for wearing jeans. And I just felt so attacked uh, by this guy for like, you know, why aren't you talking about the substantive things I'm saying or what I'm doing? Like how how is this, you know, 2012 and you're, um, you know, commenting on my, my outfits, like, how is that news? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and he, he just always had a bone to pick with me, this guy, he never had anything nice to say. He would write for kind of like industry reports. Um, and then eventually, uh, maybe like five or six years in, I remember him covering the opening of our new office and we had some pretty successful companies that we had backed, um, like Omada Health. And he was like, maybe Rock Health has learned their lesson or maybe the leaders of Rock Health have learned their lesson. And I was like, okay. And then he never talked about us again. But I took things really personally kind of early on in my career because I was really insecure. I had imposter syndrome, which I we can debate if that's real or not. But sure. I felt like uh I had to pretend to be more competent than I really than I was, which I was very competent, but I had um you know, I had a lot of insecurity. And so when when I would hear these things or reporters would say these things, it would totally make me I would go spinning on them. I wasted a lot of time worried about those things, which now I look back and I'm like, oh, little Hallie. I know. I know. (laughs) You know, I wish I could like give her a hug and say, you're going to be fine. And this will only really encourage you to carry on. Like that stuff, you know, only helped me reconfirm, like I'm here for the long haul. Like I'm not, you know, they might've thought I was a fly by night, like coming in and, you know, getting a lot of, cause we got a lot of attention. Uh, this was, the thing. we got a lot of attention uh, at the beginning of rock health, partially because I was a woman and they needed more stories of women. So I was on all the lists, the Forbes and everything. And that made a lot of like the old, the old guard at the time, I don't want to say jealous, but like they didn't like it. But I just came in and had all this attention suddenly. I loved it because it it helped build our business. And mm-hmm. we built a very successful business using that attention. We did good with it. But yeah, I'm just going on and on now. No, no, it. this is great. And I'm so curious because obviously, you know, I know you as a person you are today. And I would never think you were insecure. You are, you know, I look at you and I'm like, man, she has a stance for things. You have an opinion like that takes a lot of guts to like, you know, have opinion on certain stuff. So, you know, it sounds like a cliche question, but truly like, how did you get over those insecurities? And, you know, you've also opened up like you were people pleasing. So how oh, have you gone yes. through those times? Yeah. Oh, that's these my are, goal oh life. my gosh. This is such a, this is such an important conversation. And I hope a lot of women in their twenties can do things a little differently than I did. So there are two questions there. There's the the people pleasing question. <laughs> so we'll, we'll tackle that second. Let's yes, focus yes. on kind of um, insecurities. So and I said this a little bit earlier, but there is research that shows that women are evaluated based on our track record and what we have accomplished. And men are evaluated based on their potential. And this is why Mark Zuckerberg, who had never done anything in his life and dropped out of college, could get venture funding and start Facebook. And it is why women who are completely capable of starting a company go out and fail to raise venture funding. And this is a major problem that I alone cannot solve. You alone cannot solve. This is, we're, we're, and we're not solving it. The amount of funding going towards women is actually shrinking. So I don't, that's, that's another podcast. Yeah. But I think, I think because of it, I felt like I hadn't accomplished enough to deserve to be where I am. But you, 
you have to realize you deserve to be where you are because you put yourself there and no one can take that away from you. They can choose to not help you, but by not helping you, they're not taking anything away from you. And I think that's a key differentiation. And you have to find the people that will help you. And there are people who will help you. I was able to find a lot of incredible people who believed in my vision and helped and joined me as colleagues, as co-founders, as investors. And Focus on those folks and ignore if people don't want to be part of it, that's their loss and you can't stress over it because the time and energy you give to folks who have decided not to be part of your thing only takes away from you putting energy into moving forward. And you have to just focus on moving forward. You deserve to be exactly where you are and it's going to be very hard but you are going to earn every accolade and every step moving forward. And it only gets easier. I, I mean, it's so it's so easy for me now. I love it. Like oh, <laughs> later in your career, I mean, later, like yeah. the further you get in your career, it's just mm-hmm. so much easier. Cause as I said, you're, you know, you're evaluated based on what you've accomplished. And I persevered. I have my tattoo right here that says she persisted and, um, you know, and it gets, it does get easier, but you have to remember that you deserve to be where you are because you put yourself there and you don't need someone to give you permission to be there. I love that. And also, like you were saying, just getting the right people around you. I feel like you need to build that clan and that bubble because who you're around and who supports you is like half the battle. I think. Yeah. I had a, I had an early VC meeting, um, that I remember vividly, it was a VC in Boston. And to this day, I do not send them deals, but we were sitting on a table, we pitched Rock Health. And at the end, he was silent. He didn't give any feedback. He didn't have any comments. And it felt like eternity until he finally said, who are you to do this? Stop. And I was like, I mean, I don't know. I had this internship at Apple and, you know, I worked at Intel. I mean, I had I had maybe two and a half years of actual work experience at that point in my life. He was right. Um, But like being an asshole didn't help Mm -hmm. either of us. But I left that meeting, I mean, just in tears. And my co-founder at Rock Health, who was in the meeting with me, he was like, if they don't want to work with us, we don't want to work with them. Like, move on. And it was much harder for me because I, I really dislike rejection. So maybe that's a good segue into like the people pleasing stuff, but (laughs) that's super helpful. And then yeah, people pleasing something that I continuously work on. I am getting better, but it's still something that I'm trying to tackle. And it's interesting how it's also come out now being a founder and CEO with teammates, which is interesting. Like, I don't know if that makes, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's something I literally was talking to my therapist about it yesterday. It doesn't, that doesn't go away, but um, you have to realize when people pleasing is getting in the way of uh, your your success or of your fiduciary duties. And there's something called the likability trap. And there's a great book on that title. Alicia Menendez wrote it. And um, women are, there's an expectation of how we operate in business that is different from men. Um, but it is the expectation is that we are going to be quote unquote nicer, but, um, I, I, but that we're not going to hold the same sort of standards. Um, when in actuality, like women need to be, we, anybody needs to be able to fire someone hardest thing to do. 
I still, <laughs> I done st- it before. So <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, the first time I had to fire someone, I, um, I mean, sleepless nights, like really, I believe it. yeah, it's really hard. And it, and it's, it's one of those things where it just, it really gets easier and you realize that you have to be, you have to be a professional. You want to be kind, but you have to do what's right for the business. And, um, you know, you don't want to be an asshole about it. Um, but you don't want to avoid uncomfortable situations and make at the expense of the business, at the expense of other employees that might be suffering and kind of facing these situations head on. Um, and then, you know, if your company gets big enough, you hire a good HR person and then you have a partner that's trained to do these sort of things. But I still find, you know, conflict is really uncomfortable and, um, something that I continue to work on, but I've gotten a lot better and I'm, I'm, I'm a lot better at just not caring as much and, (laughs) you know, not just like pouring over like, oh my gosh, what went wrong there? And what did I say? And did I say the wrong thing? And it's just like, you know, that relationship didn't work out, whether it's a personal relationship or professional relationship. And here's what my therapist says. That's really helpful. I should actually look at my notes from yesterday because he said it really beautifully. It's like, everybody comes to a situation with decades of baggage and situations that they've faced. And so have you. And so you never know kind of what they're bringing to it. And so they might react more strongly because of things that they've faced. And so I tend to overthink things. Um, Like I had someone that uh, a a female call, not colleague, but someone in the field who kind of like recently ghosted me, who I was like trying to like (laughs) befriend. And then she started like ghosting me. So I was like, how am I a therapist about it? I was like, I realized I was spinning out thinking about like, was it something I said? Was it something I did? Like what happened here? He's like, this person could just be a serial ghoster, you know? (laughs) Like you never know what someone else is coming to, you know, a situation is. And Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of us waste a lot of time like agonizing over these interpersonal things, which takes away from the time that we can invest into the relationships that are, you know, sound and tried and true and stable. I love that. And it's true. And I've been in a situation, I haven't fired anybody, but you know, difficult conversations with a supplier or an employer, really anyone. And, you know, I've had sleepless nights as well, but it's like, what you mentioned, you know, taking things head on is such a skill set. Like, even though it's uncomfortable, still having that difficult conversation um, that's there. But you mentioned it does get easier in time. So it's probably just like a muscle you have to build. I mean, I'm still working through it. It seems easier, but just reassuring anybody, like lean into that uncomfort, have those conversations because it does get better, um, which I love. You have to do with, so I really, the turning point for me was realizing that sometimes I was making the wrong business decision just to avoid like hurting someone's feelings. So keeping someone on as an employee longer than they needed to not confronting toxic behaviors, um, because I didn't want to make them uncomfortable, you know, things like that, or, or in partnerships, setting up partnerships that were probably not as, you know, like, say the revenue wasn't as high as it needed to be, but I felt like I, you know, didn't want to, I didn't want to push too much in the negotiations because I didn't want to like scare them away. But actually like, I think people, if they don't respect you for doing what's right for the business, Mm -hmm. then like they're not someone that you need in your life anyways. Yeah. It's so true. I'm glad you brought that up again because it's like you have this fight. Fiduciary. Fiduciary duty. duty 10 times fast. On the business. I remember once my husband said, because we're self-funded, I don't have, you know, a board or any advisors at this age. I have friends who I kind of, you know, look up to and who 
are just gracious to give me their time. But he's like, it's exactly what you said. He's like, think about if you had investors and you had a board meeting, you know, where you yeah. had to talk about why is this person still here if they're not performing or why is that influencer or partnership not performing? So exactly yeah. what you said actually has been it was like this switch just turned on like, okay, this is actually for the business. It's not about Yasmin. It's like, how do I make sure we're like doing well, we're successful, yeah. financials are in place for everyone yeah. um, and the mission, which is the biggest aspect of what we're doing. So I love what you said. You have a fiduciary duty to yourself and to make sure that your business is successful. Yes. No, I love it. Well, let's talk about Natalis. I want to talk about, you know, we recently chatted about your investor journey and experience, but you know, this is the first time you really were an operator for a yeah. company. So so tell me more about how the idea happened, because I think if I read correctly that you were like, never in a million years did you think you were going to start a company. So how did that happen? <laughs> and I was right. I probably shouldn't have, but it was, <laughs> it, um, I mean, it, it's funny because what I learned there was that I, 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 I'm a really great cheerleader, supporter, mentor, investor in founders, but being an operator is, is not how I want to spend my time. I'm glad I did it. Um, we created an incredible company, had a great exit in a, in a relatively short period of time. Very. So Natalist um, is a company that I started after my own struggles getting pregnant and recognizing along the way that all these products that I was buying, not only were they from like entirely male-owned companies, they didn't have like the TLC. They didn't they didn't look and feel like the beauty products that were on my counter that made me feel really good and loved when I was using them. They were like products, they looked and felt like products that I used when I was sick. Like they looked like a thermometer or, you know, a, you know what a pregnancy test looks like. And so I really set out to create um, a brand that could build products that were just as trusted as the large companies that have products in the space, but really made people feel good when they use them and, and also span the aisles, right? Like when you're trying to get pregnant, you need ovulation tests and pregnancy tests, but you also need prenatals and maybe you need fertility supplements and maybe your partner also needs those. And so really building kind of all of those under one brand in one aisle in the store versus having to like run around. And so we started with this like get pregnant bundle and really built the company from there. So we started it in late 2018, launched in 2019 and sold in 2021, which was a great time to sell a business. Um, and, and now it's under um, ownership of Everly Well and doing really really well. Um, it's great to have kind of the resources of a larger company that has a lot of like testing capabilities. And so I, for the last two years have been supporting as an advisor, but actually this is like my last, I'm rolling off now and fully moving out of the company, but will always, you know, always be my baby. <laughs> yes. Well, what's so interesting is that, you know, you mentioned you didn't think you'd be an entrepreneur and at the time you're investing. And I think you were like trying to find somebody to start this, yeah. right? Like oh, yeah. what were you looking for an ideal world. I, I had talked to two people who I, I had two different interviews. I was like, I'm going to, you know, find the right operator, back them and mm -hmm. support them, but they can really run. Um, and after the second interview with someone, I was like, man, I'm just going to like step on their toes. Like I have so many <laughs> ideas. I just want to do this. I just want to yeah. get this out in the world. So I did, I just got it out in the world. And then, um, we had, we had a small team. We were never bigger than a, than 10 people. Oh, okay. And after like the first year or two, maybe the first 18 months, our, our COO, I made her our CEO. And so I did kind of eventually get out of that role. 
just recognizing I'm not an operator. I don't enjoy operating, but she was really doing the work and she's an incredible leader. So uh, her name is Vernita Brown and she, you know, became, she became the CEO that really saw us through the acquisition. Um, I was still, you know, the, the sole board member and I was, my title was chief women's health officer, um, which really just allowed me to kind of be uh, kind of special ops, like whatever, yeah. wh- whatever was needed. Like at one point I was like, let's set out to make the best. We wanted to redo our, pri- our prenatals. Like let's make the absolute best custom prenatal ever. Um, and that was like a pet project I got to do mm-hmm. with like our, um, nutrition team. And, you know, I was able to kind of pick up different pieces. I was able to support, um, you know, different new product launches and whatnot, which I really enjoyed. And so it confirmed that, you know, I, like my instinct is right. I, I know that I've, I'm not an operator. And so actually when I, when I sold Natalist after that, I had, there's a kind of a, a 90 day grace period where you can kind of take your earnings and put them into other investments and, and get a tax advantage. And so I was this idea for, for the company that I recently started co-fertility kind of came about because I was like, oh, I have 90 days. I want to put this money into something else. I'm going to find an operator (laughs) and, and back them. And so I did. So I knew, um, Lauren Mackler from, she worked at Uber health when I was at rock health and we got to know each other in San Francisco. And so I knew she had, she had been at Uber health for eight Uber for eight and a half years. And I, she was on maternity leave and I, I, you know, knew the timing could be right for her. So, and she was looking to do something in women's health. And so we kind of, uh, you know, was able to get her to be the CEO. It mm-hmm. took a little bit of convincing. Um, she was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a CEO. I'm like, you're the CEO. You are a CEO. Um, yeah. and I will be like your best chairperson ever. Oh, I love that. I'm <laughs> um, sure you are. Yeah. And so I hope I, I, I try to be, um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of my second, you know, wave into being a founder, recognizing that like, to be for me being a founder is being a co-founder being a supporter and not necessarily the operator and i know that now in my life which is great um and it gives me the freedom to continue you know to invest and write and podcast and do all these other things that i enjoy doing yeah and i want to talk a little bit more about this because i feel like a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs but it's really not that glamorous especially like on the operating side like the things that you're dealing with i'm sure i mean that my day to day is not glamorous by any means so no. and it's tough um, <laughs> like at all but you know what were maybe some of the most surprising things like you knew in your gut that okay maybe this i don't love to operate but what were maybe some things for anyone who's listening who maybe hasn't yeah. run a business or like okay what does that mean what did she not like about it yeah. so they can kind of reflect on themselves yeah so for me, I really like working. I like I really like doing the job, not delegating the job to other people. Um, and so I'm best in a situation where like I have tasks to do and I can do them. So actually like a one woman company would be fine for me until, you know, as long as the company was contained. It's harder for me and and I think that a lot of people are like this and maybe don't want to admit it, but I'm going to admit it. Like I'm not as good at delegating and developing other people because I'll end up being like, I'll just, you know, you, I delegate something. You don't do it the way I like it. I'll just fix it. And so that's not efficient. That's not a good way to, to grow a team at all. Um, and, and really a great leader, like a great CEO is is a people manager is an exceptional people manager who can help people develop their skills over the long run and take the time 
to understand what motivates each individual person and helps them to do their work. And so you end up spending more time managing people than doing the work. And so I think, you know, it's a very rare person that's a good manager. And I've been fortunate to work with a lot of them and I want to empower them because I think what they do is magic. Um, but that's, that's not me. And so I'm like, give me the work to do. I will do the work. Um, Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I, I know that to be a CEO of a company with employees, um, you really need to be a people manager a good, effective, benevolent people manager. Yeah. And you know, you like your qualities that you were saying, you can get something done. Like you can get tasks done. You move quick, I'm sure. So you were the CEO for the first, you know, you said 18 months, which those qualities are so important to get anything off the ground. When did you start feeling like, okay, the people management aspect is becoming more important. So you said you had 10 people, like, is it at five, six? Like, I'm just personally curious as a founder. I mean, I would say at like three. And and actually what happened was we kind of of, we kind of noticed it early on. And so I said, Vernita, you manage everyone. I'm going to manage you. You manage everyone because she just was so good at culture mm-hmm. and creating a positive work environment, a, a place I wanted to work. And so I, I put her in charge of all of that. And then eventually it was like, wait a minute, actually what you're doing is what the C like you're doing a CEO's job. <laughs> um, and so it kind of became where it was like, okay, well, what else do you need to do to become a CEO? And she did have, have a background in business. It was a little different. It was like more in the nonprofit business side, but um, you know, we worked together to be like, here are the other things that you need to learn. Let's come up with a six month plan for like getting you up to speed on these other parts of being a CEO. But I think the most important thing you do better than anyone I've ever met. So like, let's figure this out. Yeah, no, it's true. I love that. And one thing I know we didn't touch upon, but before you started Natalis or early on, I believe, were you pregnant at the time? No. No, I, my son was a year old okay, when I young. started Natalist. Yeah. Got it. Because I know yeah. my husband is an entrepreneur and I know you both, you know, wanted to start a company again. Your your son is one year, like only one year old. One, yeah. How was that experience kind of managing yeah. not even a toddler and like launching a business when both you yeah. guys were doing it? Was it so, craziness or? It, so it was a great question because when I told my husband I was starting Natalist, um, you know, he was, I was in a point in my um career where I had a lot of flexibility and I, um, I was working on my MPH part-time and I was investing and I was teaching and I, you know, I didn't have a boss. I didn't have to show up anywhere. I could pause anything. And so he was like, Oh man, I don't know if you should go into this again. I know how you are as a founder. I said, I promise, (laughs) like I will keep my work contained. I promise I will. And, um, and I did because, We set, we set that expectation and Renita helped uphold that of like, let's create a culture where we're not slacking people at night and on weekends and where we don't create, put calls on people's calendars at four. And, um, you know, we, we really created a, a very intentional, healthy work environment that was very parent friendly. And we had many people on the team that were parents. And so Mm -hmm. that was really important to us um, from the beginning. And it worked well until COVID. And then we really struggled because it was like, okay, we want to be, everybody works from home, which was fine. We, We did really well working from home, but like we still had to work 
even though many of us didn't have childcare, we still had to work. And so then it was just, I mean, everybody was in this position of like, how can we make it all like my child's watching TV and, and <laughs> having, you know, popsicles for lunch, um, just so I could be on this meeting. And I mean, COVID, COVID was really difficult for that, but our business just soared in COVID. I mean, that's really was a huge inflection point for us. And so we, you know, had a business that we were trying to keep up with and grow with while also everybody individually was challenged with, you know, childcare situations. So mm-hmm. yeah, that mm-hmm. was, that was tough. We, yeah, we no, were sure. about those days. We're just like, I know. Wait, I still hang out that we, with the, the natalist moms, we're still all um, one one person still works on the on the company and the others have left, but we still, you know, we always are. Um, we have a group chat and we hang out and we're just like, oh my gosh, those days. I don't know how we got through them. It was very tough. Oh my gosh, I'm sure, and especially with the business kind of booming. That's you yeah. know craziness of the yeah. personal life and work. And I'm gonna fast forward a little bit, but you mentioned yeah, yeah. you know the company sold in three a little over three years. Was this an intention that you had or how did that conversation kind of come up? Cause it's fairly yeah. like on the earlier side, relatively. Yeah. Small. Yeah, it was. Um, so we got approached, um, by another company for acquisition and we started going down that path with this other company. Um, they made an offer and we took that offer and shopped it. And, um, and, and it was a, a time, in the market where it was really favorable for us. And so, you know, I wouldn't want to be selling a company today, but selling a company in the high summer of 2021 was a, a great thing. And um, we fortunately, you know, were able to to pick an acquirer that was an awesome fit for us, both culturally, both product wise, um, and that we knew would continue to invest in the brand. And they have, they've done a really great job continuing to invest in the brand. Amazing. Well, last question. I know you're kind of tapering off um, the business this week. Like you mentioned, like what's next for you? What are you excited about? Whether it's personally, professionally, Yeah, love to hear more. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm back in a season of my life where I have, I do have some flexibility. I'm, um, you know, on the board of this new company, Co-Fertility, which I am obsessed with and spend a lot of time on. Um, But I also, um, you know, I continue to teach at Columbia Business School, which I've been doing since 2015. And this year I started blogging, which was- I love your um, blogs, by the way. Thank you. So helpful. Oh my gosh. Thank you. That's very kind. Um, so hallieteco.com is my website. My blog is there. Um, and I've been aiming to write every day, just a little bit every day. And um, just to get everything, all the lessons in my head that I've learned over the years kind of out on paper. And it's really for um, founders and healthcare founders. There's a lot on there about starting a healthcare company. Um, and so I think what's next for me is just more of that. Um, I, my son is six now, so, you know, he's in school full time and, um, it's this age is, is knock on wood pretty easy. Um, and so I get to have a lot of fun with him and we travel a lot and, um, just, you know, being able to, to reflect on, I just turned 40. Um, so reflect on my career and, (laughs) and help others is, is really my, my big focus. I love it. Well, you're doing it. And like I said, even before this call, I was reading a blog you wrote about like how to think through advisors and even breaking out the equity. And I I mean, these are conversations that a lot of people aren't having. So I love the detail because you've been there, done that. So it's a lot of good stuff. We'll put in the show notes, but Hallie, thank you for being with us. Excited for you. And thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for a great conversation. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.